love you, Jesus. Good evening. Really appreciate you being here. And uh, I was talking to uh, I was talking to a friend of mine uh, this week, and I don't know. I've shared it with some of you. I don't think I've shared it from here. But uh, <laughs> I want to be careful. I already offended you once this week. I want to be careful not to do it again <laughs> several times. <laughs> and uh, so people, you know, they say, oh, you're at Sun City, huh, for revival. And uh, I say, yeah. And, uh, and I'm, I'm young. And normally, they, I guess most would figure that you wouldn't have a young guy here for revival. But I've got, you know, the corner market in here and threatened pastor, you know, once a year to have me. And, uh, and uh, so they say, how's it going? And I, I tell them the honest. And, hey. I don't lie. Uh, if I was going to offend you, I just wouldn't say anything at all. Uh, but this is my favorite revival out here this time of year. And the encouragement and the... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They're really bad out here, brother. <laughs> no, <laughs> no I, this, is, this is one of my favorite revivals, and uh, if, if not the favorite revival. And I'm just uh, extremely encouraged. And uh, uh, I've said it, and again, I don't know much, and you've been around longer than me, but the ministry opportunity in Sun City is phenomenal. I mean, it is phenomenal from my perspective as an evangelist. And hey, I'm, I'm willing to be stretched and grown. But see here, really, age barriers and cultural barriers, those kind of things are out the window, man. See, when I go into a town or I go into a, a setting to minister, there's all kinds of barriers. There's language barriers. There's age barriers. There's ethnic barriers. There's, you know, all these different kind of barriers. You don't have those here, really, unless I'm sorely mistaken. And so the opportunity of evangelism here is phenomenal, uh, which should put a, a measure of weight on us, I would imagine. So uh, it, it's just a delight to be here with you and to partner with you. And, and again, a lot of my... Uh, a lot of my encouragement from you is, is it keeps me uh, encouraged. So thank you so much. I want to share with you, continue sharing with you out of John chapter 5. And this, this material that we've been studying has just been, uh, it has been instrumental in what God has been doing and shaping and how he's been shaping us and, and where he's been directing us. And I'm hoping it's been the same for you. And I really believe it's the gospel. I mean, this really is, is just great material. And again, uh, just to catch us up on the story, uh, you know, uh, Jesus comes into the temple area. And uh, he's been here before, but this is another feast, and he's there. And, and there's a number of things that I really want to share with you this week that I just really don't think we're going to get to. Jesus comes into the temple area, and, and he's in an area of the temple where really, uh, you're thinking of a Messiah in the temple, this is not probably the area he's going to be in, okay? Uh, it's the sheep area. It's the sheep gate. And, of course, they bring sheep in there. And you know what sheep leave behind when they come by. And, uh, see, it's that kind of place. And, and that, see, that's where the lame and the crippled, the paralyzed are. See, that, that's that kind of area. See, you come in there, you not only got to watch where you step, but you got people that are pegging, you know, they're grabbing at you, they're constantly begging. See, that's the area of the temple. That's, see, it's not where the, the high priest is going to be. It's not where the big wigs are going to hang out. It's not where you're going to book general assembly revivals there. See, that's, this is not the area. And yet, see, he's always hanging out in these kind of places. And he, it's not something that he does. Again, it's the poeto idea that he's driven. Uh, I'm amazed at the kind of people that he, he, he calls and that he embraces and who he hangs out with and, 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 and the people that he draws near to him. See, he's, he's constantly called a drunkard and a glutton and, you know, a friend of tax collectors and harlots. 
And see, that's just the kind of guy that he is. And he's just driven to those kinds of people. And, and he, you know, he, he, he's the answer to their sickness. And so that's where you find him in the temple. Phenomenal ministries coming out of there. And, of course, the leaders of Israel, just, they're on a different page. They don't understand. Uh, they have no concept of the type of intimacy that he shares with the Father. And so the conversation begins in verse 16 to the end of the chapter. And we've been looking at that. And Jesus is trying to talk to them that the things that he's doing, they're not just things that he does. See, they're not just blind events. They're not just, they're not just things that he does, you understand? There's, there's meaning behind them. In fact, how he tries to describe this is whatever makes God do what he does makes me do what I do. And he tells them other places in the gospel, this is a reoccurring theme. He says, hey, if you knew, if you knew my father, you'd recognize me. I'm telling you. Because the things that he's doing is the things that I'm doing. What makes him tick makes me tick. And so if you don't know me, if you don't recognize me, you don't know him. And he constantly says, you don't know me or my father. And then he contrasts us, and we didn't get to this this week, and we were not going to get it, we're not going to get it to, the, uh, to, to this week. But later on in the gospel, he uses the poieto idea, the internal drive and, and motivation and creativity that makes a person do what they do. He uses that with them. And uh, he says, you poieto, you do what your father does. And they say, our father is Abraham. And he says, your father's the devil. And what makes him do what he does makes you do what you do. Now, you talk about aggressive. You can't get much more aggressive than that, you understand. And that's the idea, you understand. I do what my father does, you do what your father does. And you can't help but, he tells them, you can't help but to do what your father does. That's the nature of who they are. And uh, it's really, again, um, I'm very aware of talking about that passage. Because if you are an apple tree... You're going to produce apples, period. Okay? If you're a pear tree, you're going to produce pears. And I'm not talking about works. I'm talking about motivation. I'm talking about desire. See, I'm talking about a longing for the things of God. I'm not talking about deeds. See, sin is no longer in the deed, you understand. It's in the motive. In fact, my deed may not look too hot, but my motive may be pure. See, that's the idea. In fact, uh, one of the things that I've been finding is that, see, a Playboy magazine, just to pick something out of the wind, a Playboy magazine is not sin. It's the motivation that leads to the Playboy magazine. Well, maybe that didn't hit it. That's got to make sense to you, you understand? See, lying is not the sin, or the lie itself is not the sin. It's what leads to the lying, the motivation behind the lying, which is sin, you understand? See, that's the deal. So there's something else there. The expression of my anger and my fist flying is not the sin. And although, yeah, we, there's something to talk about that, but it's the motivation lying behind that. And you can, see, you can take away the lying. You can take away the magazine. You can take away those kind of things and still have the problem, you understand. And see, that, that's what's going on here. And he goes on and he begins, and as we looked at last night, which is one of my favorite new passages of Scripture, and it's, uh, he begins to detail the intimacy that we have with the Father. That his heart beats for me, which you understand changes my whole perspective of judgment. See, I was always scared to death that God was going to, that, hey, my, that God was looking at me and, and had the idea, if you don't live the way that I've called you to live, and if you don't measure up, I'm sending you to hell. And that is so unbiblical. That is absolutely unbiblical. He wants me there? Oh, my goodness. He has sacrificed everything to get me there. I'm his kid, you understand. And he's pulling for me. And and the only way I'm going to go to hell is if I fight all the way through him. And he won't send me there. I send myself there. And we didn't get a chance to look at this this week. But verses 21 through 23, it talks about the idea of judgment. And judgment, you understand, Jesus says over and over and over, the the Father no longer judges, but all authority for judgment has been placed on the Son. 
Okay? So in other words, judgment hinges on Jesus. But when you get to the end of the gospel, he says, hey, I don't judge. And over and over, the idea of condemnation and judgment is placed hinging on Jesus. So, hey, you understand, he's the judgment. He's the standard of judgment. But judgment happens when we reject the life that God has offered us in Christ. So we stand judged the moment we say, no, judgment takes place. In fact, John chapter 3 says we're already condemned. We're already under judgment. And so Jesus has come not to condemn the world, but to save the world. See, that's the idea. So he's mad out after us, you understand. I mean, all out. That's the idea. Now, upon saying that, you come into verse 24, which is what I want to look with you tonight. It's not going to take that long. It's one verse. And this is what he says. He says, I tell you the truth, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death to life. Father, we love you this evening. I want what matters to you to matter to me. Uh, it's, there's two things going on. I can think too highly of myself and I can think too little of myself. I guess I want to think of myself the way you think of me. And we'll give you all the praise in the name of Jesus. Amen. Um, I get a little hot, a little, uh, a little uh, I don't know how to say it. Anger, I don't think, is probably the right word, but I get a little hot under the collar. Uh, I get a little upset when people don't listen to me when I'm talking to them, okay? I don't know the traditional way to preach, okay? I never learned how to preach. Didn't do very good in preaching class. Uh, Got to see. Uh, still don't, Stephen Manley says I'm pointless in my preaching because I don't have any points. And uh, I, I don't preach right, and I understand that. Um, my preaching... <laughs> No comments, Pastor. And, um, but when I, uh, when I preach, it's a conversation. I'm talking to you. And uh, when I open my mouth, I, 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 it matters to me. I mean, it really matters to me. And uh, I, I get upset when people don't listen to me. And uh, I, I was at a church in Peoria, and he's on, I have a CD, The Month Club, and, and this will be on it, so he'll get this, and he'll chuckle when he hears this. Um, but I won't say his name. And uh, I got on his congregation Sunday morning. And I've never got on a congregation like this. But they, they were, we had about 100, 150 there that morning. And they just weren't, they were plain flat, not listening. I mean, I had people talking over here. Normally you have one or two couples that think they can hide in the midst of them, you know, and you give them glares and once in a while throw things at them. But, you know, you never really go too, too uh, abrasive. But this Sunday morning, no one was listening. No one was listening. I mean, everyone was talking. And I finally stopped and I said, what's your problem? I said, do we want to shut the service right now? Do you not want to hear what I have to say? This is pathetic. Why, why did you come? And he told me, he goes, he goes, you know, you told my congregation everything this morning, but you hated them. And, I, you know, I, I understand what you were saying. And he meant that as a joke, just in case you didn't get that really funny guy. But um, I was really aggressive on them. But I'm, th- this matters to me. I mean, this really matters to me. This matters to me more than anything that I do. Because what I'm telling you is not my idea. And I, and you probably, you know, probably shouldn't give all this away, but if you really want to offend me, come up to me after the service and say, that's a nice spin on that passage. And you'll offend me. Because I don't think that's a spin on that passage. I think that's what that passage says. And I know that I invite criticism on myself for that, and, you know, and that's fine. But I believe we're on to something in here. And I believe it's the truth. And if you want to offend me, then, you know, hey, say those kind of things. Uh, Or get up and leave. But this matters to me. This really, really matters to me more than anything else that goes on. Don't, if you don't agree with me on, on basketball, you may be wrong, but it's not going to bother me too much. Or trucks or, or those kinds of things, that's fine. Hey, everyone's got an opinion, you're entitled to yours. 
But this really, really matters to me. And one of the things that I'm finding is, get this, in the midst of this conversation with the Pharisees, and Jesus does this all the time, he's talking with them, and (laughs) who knows what he looks like, but I can see him getting redder and redder. Because what's interesting is after verse 19, they don't open their mouth anymore, if you've noticed that. It's all red letters, red probably for a reason. I mean, he's breathing it out here, you understand. And you come down to verse 24, and this point, at this point, he throws in this, I tell you the truth, okay? In the King James Version, I think it's amen or amen or a verily, verily, I say unto you, or, or truly, truly, I say unto you. It's one of those kinds of things. In the NIV, it's I tell you the truth. And in the original language, it's an amen, amen which is a very specific pointed introduction to something. And what, what, what that's doing, what he's doing there, is he's actually grabbing Old Testament imagery and he's bringing it into a New Testament hour. And what he's saying is this really, really matters to me. What I'm about to tell you, I want you to understand. Is really, this really matters to me. His eyes are pop, popping out, I would imagine. His veins are bulging in his neck. If the spit's going to fly, it's flying right here. And he's talking to them, and he says, I'm telling you, this really, really matters to me. Amen, amen. And I got interested on that, and I don't want to spend all night on this, because it's, you know, it's not, I mean, it's amen, amen type of thing. But you go back, uh, and you look at that. Again, it's Old Testament imagery, and the word amen was used to uh, clarify, or it's really not even the idea of clarify, but it's to identify or to affirm a prophetic utterance or a divine command of God. And what I find, they're all over the place. In 1 Kings, David's ministry, uh, it's in terms of some of the Mosaic law and numbers, those kinds of things. But I found it in Nehemiah chapter 8. And if you've ever, never read Nehemiah chapter 8, it's really phenomenal. It's the, the teaching of the law by Ezra. And uh, Ezra was, is kind of one of my heroes of the Old Covenant. He dedicated his life to the interpretation of the law. And his idea of preaching is very similar to our our idea of preaching in that he's standing uh, uh, before a group of people who no longer speak the language of the Bible. Many of them don't read it. And so what you have going on in Nehemiah chapter 8 is the first sermon. And it really sounds like a sermon. In fact, let me just give you a couple of these. It says in Nehemiah chapter 8, when the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, all the people assembled as one man in the square before the water gate. They told Ezra the scribe to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand. He read it aloud from daybreak till noon, which long preaching is biblical, you understand. He read it aloud from daybreak till noon as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men and women and others who could understand. And all the people listened attentively which is also biblical. So it's okay that I get red-faced on Sunday morning once in a while. It's okay. They listen attentively. Ezra the scribe stood on a high wooden platform built for the occasion. And on his right beside him, and he lists a number of these uh, Levites who were translating what was being said, translating the law because they didn't know what the law said. They no longer spoke the language. You understand they lived in Babylon for a number of years. Then it said in verse 5, Ezra opened the book and all the people could see him because he was standing above them. And as he opened it, the people all stood up. And at that time, he instructed them, uh, the people all stood up during the instruction of the law. Now, this sounds really familiar to preaching, doesn't it? He goes on, and in in verse 6, which is the point we want to look at tonight, it says, uh, Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and all the people lifted their hands and responded, Amen, Amen. That's the deal. 
It's this affirmation of what he's doing. It's this, hey, we recognize what's taking place here. We recognize this is the movement in speaking of God. We affirm the prophetic utterance. And then, of course, it goes down and it says how the Levites instructed the people in the law while the people were standing there. They read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving the meaning so the people could understand what was being read. That's preaching. Preaching is not my ideas to you. Preaching is taking this book and saying, this is what it says. Okay, hey, this is what's going on here. And it's making clear this book. I believe that. And they're, they're affirming that. They're amen. I mean, this is meaningful stuff here. The people responded amen, amen, and fell their face on the ground, prostrate before the Lord and the word that was being spoken. That, that's the imagery, you understand. Nehemiah chapter 8. That's the imagery that Jesus pulls into this setting. Okay? The preaching and instruction of the law that was taking place, you with me? In the Old Covenant. Jesus looks to, the, looks to the Pharisees and says, I'm telling you, this matters to me. He grabs Old Testament imagery that you know that they would know, and he yanks that, he sticks it right in the middle of his conversation, and he says, amen, or verily, verily, I say unto you. Okay? Divine words type of stuff. And then he goes on, he says, verily, verily, I say unto you, verily, verily, I say unto you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. Now, there's one thing I want to focus in on the passage real quick I found really interesting. Uh, And it fits really well with the context. Everything in this passage just uh, amplifies the, uh, what, uh, amplifies, amplifies the reality, amplifies it, makes it greater, stronger of God's presence with Jesus. Okay? See, the old covenant idea of, G, of, of a man serving God, God is out there, is, see, that's so contrary to the way Jesus is talking. That literally, the, the, the intimate involvement of the father in the son's life, it's over and over and over emphasized in this passage. In fact, if you listen to what he says, he says, verse 24, I tell you the truth, or verily, verily, I say unto you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. In other words, somehow, when you're hearing Jesus' word and you believe it, you're not believing Jesus. Who are you believing? The Father. Because Jesus isn't saying this. See, it's not his word. And by the time you get down to John chapter 7, and I know you want to hear it, so I'll give it to you. This is great. Uh, the, the Pharisees, if you want to look here with me, it's in John chapter 7, verse 14. He's back at the temple again for another feast. And listen to what they say about his preaching and about his ministry. Not in verse 14 of chapter 7, not until halfway through the feast did the Jews go up to Jerusalem or did Jesus go up to Jerusalem to the temple courts and began to teach. The Jews were amazed and asked, how did this man get such learning without having studied? Guess what Jesus says? Verse 16, my teaching is not my own. It comes from the one who sent me. And then he goes on to talk about, hey, listen, if you choose to do God's will, you're going to find out whether my teachings from me or from God. Plain, flat, down to it. That when you believe me, you're not believing me, you're believing the one who sent me. So the emphasis in the passage is not on Jesus, you understand, alone, apart from the Father who's speaking, and he's coming up with clever, invented stories and sermons to persuade you. I never really liked the idea of the preacher as the persuader, and learned that in college, Uh, or, or the propositioner. Have you heard it talked like that, the propositioner? Not that that's bad, but I'm not kosher with that really. Because if preaching is dependent upon me, we're in, we're in trouble. I believe with everything in me that uh, the Holy Spirit is moving in this place. The greatest compliment I ever had 
was by an 80-year-old woman. Now, 80-year-old women give me compliments all the time, and I take them. I was preaching at a retirement community in Florida. I'm at a lot of retirement communities. I never really thought about this before. <laughs> That's right. It's the thing to do. I was at this retirement community in Florida, and I used to be, and this is about three years ago, I was very intimidated. Why they asked me for revival, I have no idea. But I came, and I was so nervous. And uh, there, there was, it's that 400-member church, it's in Hernando, Florida. And uh, I'm preaching, and I, I used to say stuff like, I promise you, this is not of me, it's the Bible. And I always try to prove myself and qualify myself. I'd explain Nehemiah chapter 8 before every sermon, so they would understand it's not my stuff, it's the Word. And after one of the services, this little tiny old lady, she was 80, I think 81 or 82, she's up in the 80s. 80s, good, good deal, young lady, young lady. And, uh, and uh, sweet little lady, she comes up to me, and she says, uh, can I talk to you? And I said, sure. And she pointed her finger at me and began to talk. And I'm not kidding you. The weight in this woman's voice. She said, when you first, when I came in and saw you setting up there, she said, I thought to myself, who in the world is this kid? And she says, and then you stood up and opened your mouth and the Holy Spirit came out. And she goes, God convicted me. And she goes, I'm supposed to tell you that you are never to make an excuse for your age again, young man. She says, God has called you to preach. Go preach. And I, I just said, yes, ma'am. And I, you know, hey. And I, the weight of that little sweet lady just, I mean, it's like a fist in my, in my chest. And just, whoom. And that was the greatest compliment that I could have ever. I'm really not interested in, wow, you know, this and that and woo. And it, it, it's, it's to hear someone say, oh, did you hear, did you, did you see the meaning of that passage, Jeremiah? Wow. And what God, and they, they go on. And that's, that's the deal. See, that's, that's what's going on here. That Jesus is not preaching. It's not his deal. It's not, he's not convincing. It's not based on the authority of Jesus. And it is Jesus, you understand. But what's taking place in his ministry is based on authority that has been established over an entire old covenant hour with God and his people. I mean, an infinite God who is expressing himself through the lips of a man. That's what's taking place here. And folks, I believe that. And the power in preaching is not on style or anything like that. The power in preaching rests in God, the living word, speaking and revealing this in ways that I cannot speak or reveal it, which is phenomenal. Does that make sense? You're giving me the same look. I really believe that makes sense. And that's the idea here. And so uh, what's stressed here in this passage is, hey, I tell you the truth, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. Now, this is aggressive, okay? So I want you to shrug your shoulders. You relax. This word, this idea is compounded a little bit more, and it's in the word "sent." Jesus says, "Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me." Powerful truth. There are two words for "sent" in the original language. Okay, both meaning different things. Uh, one word is the word "apostello," which is where we get our word "apostle," and one is the word "pimpo." which is another sin. Now, I shared this with a group of senior adults in Prescott Valley, okay? And also at Prescott Conference a few weeks ago. Set them down, talked to them about this. And I said, I'll talk to you about two Greek words. Apostello, what, makes, what do you think of when I say apostello? And they all said, apostle. And I said, that's right. I said, what do you think of when I say pimpo? And their eyes got kind of big and they looked at one another. And this little lady, little lady goes, she goes, well, I think of pimp. <laughs> That's what she said. <laughs> and all the rest of them looked at her. And I said, that's right. And believe it or not, that's the idea behind this word. Okay? The, and the idea of pimpo carries it the idea of a pimp. Okay? 
I, I had to preface this for you so we could work together in this, okay? Apostello has to do with ascending with an authority. It is the messenger, or it is the sender sending a messenger, okay? And the power and the focus of the word apostello, it's, it, it focuses on the authority of the message that's being sent. In fact, get this, this is so great for preachers. It has nothing to do with the messenger, him or herself. Nothing to do with them. The focus is always on the message. In fact, the messenger could fall to pieces, drop over dead, not do anything right. But the message is what's central and what's sound. And the authority never relies on the messenger. It always relies on the message. Wow. It gives me hope. That's apostello, which is phenomenal. That's not this word. The word is pimpo, that God pimpoed Jesus. And the idea of a, a pimp, which again is crazy language to talk about in this kind of a setting, is the idea of a, of a prostitute who's on the edge of a street and her pimp is hiding in the shadows of the, of the corridors 20 feet away. He's controlling her. He's watching her. See, she doesn't go anywhere or he does not go. That's the imagery. And the idea of pimpo, when someone is pimpoed, you understand, it is the, me, is the sender is sending the one with the message, but as soon as he sends him, he gets off his throne and he goes with the one he has sent. Okay? So the idea is a control over. It is a presence with. It is a manipulation of. And so this is the word that Jesus uses, you understand, that when God has sent Jesus, it is not God who's out here, get it. See, the old covenant language versus new covenant language is so consistent. Jesus says, you understand, it's not God way out there who sent me here, apostello, nothing wrong with apostello, but you understand it's the pimpo language that God has sent me and then he's come along with me. And everything that you are hearing is not from me, it's from him who is with me, you understand. Which makes for a a, a grand sermon title. I don't know what you'd call it, maybe pimped by Jesus or maybe pimp pimp daddy Jesus, I, I don't know. Pastor and I are working on that. But you understand the imagery behind that, though. And again, hey, it'll make us chuckle and make us laugh, you understand. But the idea is, hey, that when God sends me, he's not apart from me. He's not apart from me. That I don't have to be afraid. That, that I don't have to tremble, you understand. That when God sends me for ministry, see, he's right along with me. And somehow, when I stand before a crowd and I present the word of God, it's not me alone. But literally, in fact, it's not even really based on me. It carries with the idea that as I preach the word, and I've seen this, I've seen this in settings. That when I just preach the word and not aim for an audience, God takes the truth of his word to whoever it is who is listening and applies it in ways that I could never, ever apply it. So a target audience does not make sense to me. Preach the word, man, and let him do his job. See, that's the idea. It's the pimpo idea. Isn't that a neat study? I, I got a really, I got a big kick out of that. And again, it makes it, it makes it more powerful as you begin to come in. And I'll just read this for you. And you, I don't even have to read it. We already talked about it the other night where Jesus says, peace be with you as the Father has sent me. I sent you. As the Father pimpoed Jesus, guess who's going to pimpo us? I'll never leave you and never forsake you, man. I'm always with you. I'm always with you. That Jesus did not send me by myself, but when he sent me, he came along with me. Now, that's the color. That's the coloring that takes place. And really, that's just a a small part of our passage. But that's the idea that's going on here. He is serious about this. Amen, amen type of stuff. I'm telling you, the Father's with me. And everything, if we could buy a hold of this, this would radically change this young guy's ministry. See, if I could realize 
and I, I've struggled with this because people talk about why are you an evangelist instead of a pastor and you don't know anybody and you know you don't have any and a lot of they don't understand first of all God called me to this and I guess I could just go take a pastor at somewhere or come on staff somewhere I've had it offered but ultimately that's not where he's leading and that what's taking place as I begin to look at my little narrow ministry and my little fifth wheel and living around that literally see he is traveling with me He's not only leading me in this ministry. That's the whole concept. He's leading me in this ministry, but he's with me. And when I step into the pulpit or whatever pulpit of my life, whether that would be at McDonald's or Taco Bell or Flying J or golf course, hey, whatever have you, that literally he manipulates that situation. That the things that I'm a part of, the things that I'm doing, the things that, I, that I'm saying, what, what's being said to me, you understand it's, it, it colors the whole thing different when he's present with me. Now, that is evident in our passage as well. In fact, it fits the whole context of what's been taking place. For instance, he says in verse 24, I tell you the truth, whoever hears my words, whoever hears what I'm saying, whoever hears the things that I'm involved with, the words that I speak. Now, just, just I want to give you a couple of these. If you would go back with me into John chapter 4, what you begin to find is, is that this idea of the power of God's speaking has been all over this section. Okay, John chapter 4, and we'll just go back one chapter. But it's all over. Back in John chapter 1, the word became flesh idea and that kind of thing. You can study that on your own. But in John chapter 4, you come to the end of the Samaritan ministry. And this is what it says. uh, Verse 40. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with him. And he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. And literally, that this little two-day pit stop in Samaria, you understand, turned into a phenomenal ministry opportunity. Now, in our day and age, well, the first thing we want to ask is, well, uh, I wonder what church growth strategy they used. Yes. Yeah. I wonder what missions planning. And of course, my response is, what in the world are you talking about, man? God, God rumbled through the life of his son in this town, and people's lives were changed. Period, man. He preached from this young woman's doorstep, you understand, and they believed in his words. Go down a few, and again, John's emphasizing this. You go down a few verses, you come into the whole Cana section, you have this royal official that's begging, we talked about this Sunday morning, this royal official who's, official who's begging him to come and heal his son, and Jesus, just flippantly, listen to this, flippantly in verse 50, you may go, your son will live. And, and in, the, in the original language, it's not your son will live, it's more emphatic than that, it's a fact type of thing. He says, you may go, your son lives. And it's the power of his, the authority that's in his word that when Jesus speaks, it's not flippant just speaking, it's God speaking, which is probably why in the New Testament we're cautioned over and over and over to mean what you say and say what you mean. That don't swear by heaven and earth, that literally don't have coarse language, that somehow as a Christian when you speak it matters. You understand? I believe that. I believe that. And Jesus speaks, and all the way over another town, a young boy, his body, his facilities, all the things that are wrong with him come in order, and that boy is healed. That's the power and the authority of his word. You go down a few verses later, he finds himself in the temple, walks up to this man who's been paralyzed for 38 years, says to him in three words, get up, take up your mat, and walk. Three phrases. And immediately the man is healed. Immediately. In fact, the text stresses immediately because it says in verse 9, at once, of chapter 5, at once the man was cured. He adds that. When the man was cured is at once. all the the malfunction, all the things that weren't taking place immediately come in line and this man was healed. See, that's the power. Now, I'll give you one more just for fun. At the end of this gospel, when they're coming to arrest Jesus, and you'll remember this, 
they say, where is Jesus? You know, or Jesus comes out and says, who are you looking for? And they say, Jesus. And he says, it is me, or the I am statement. And they all fall down. <laughs> they all, do you remember that? He says, it is I. And they all fell back and fell down. What would happen if that was in our life? What would happen if that was taking place in my life? That Jeremiah got really serious about the things he was involved. I'm talking amen, amen, serious about the ministry he was involved in. That he realized moment by moment that literally Jesus was pimpoing him. Jesus was with him. Jesus was sending him, but wasn't sending him out by himself. But Jesus sent him and, and came along with Jeremiah. And that everything in my ministry was not casual. That, that, a, that, a, that a Tuesday night revival service, low-end night, don't preach your best sermon, that kind of stuff wasn't... See, it, it changes. You know what I'm saying? We think like that, folks. See, if you want a big revival uh, offering, you're going to shoot for Sunday or Wednesday. Monday and Tuesday, yeah. See, what if... This changes all of that, doesn't it? This changes all of that. That there is something significant taking place. I, uh, if you would pray for me, one thing in the New Testament, pray this. In the name of Jesus, I ask you, pray this for me. Uh, and it would be Acts chapter 8, where Stephen stood before the leaders of his day in the church, the Pharisees and the Levites, the, uh, all those groups. His face looked like the face of an angel. And it says they came against him. But you know what the text says in uh, chapter 8, verse 6? They could not stand up against the wisdom or by the spirit which he spoke. That the power of his word was not based on Stephen, but it was a man full of God's grace and wisdom and spirit. If I could have one prayer, not for my glory, I give, I don't give bananas for that kind of thing. But if standing before the congregations of my life and revivals, if they would not be able to stand up against the wisdom or spirit by which we are a part of, what phenomenal. They could not stand up against the wisdom or spirit by which he spoke. That there was something going on in Stephen that when he opened his mouth, you ever sense that? I have sensed that. Not my own life. I'm, you know, uh, really, I mean, I, I, you, I don't know if you can really sense it when it's happening. But when you hear it from someone else, I have said in services where it's like God reached out, squeezed my neck and said, Jeremiah, are you paying attention? And I'm thinking, who told them about me? That, that's that kind of stuff that's going on there. They could not. And at the end of that passage, Stephen looks up and says, I see him <laughs> standing at the right hand of God. I wonder if that would change my extracurricular activities. I wonder if that would change my going out to eat. I wonder if that would change my ministry as a preacher. That a revival service, however big or however small, whatever night, whatever congregation, really doesn't matter to him. That there is a wisdom and a power by which he's residing, that literally the presence of God with you, that when you open your mouth, the Holy Spirit, whoa, I believe that. And I want that in my life. Oh, Jesus, that's good truth. Every time I'm powerless, every time I fall flat on my face, every time I shake my head and go, what was I thinking? It's because I forgot you were with me. Somehow I stray from you. And perhaps, Jesus, it is a little crude to talk about a sermon called Pimp Jesus or Pimp Daddy Jesus or whatever. But I want you to send me in that manner. 
I don't want to go anywhere apart from you. I have learned, even at my age, my young age, I have learned that I'm not worth too much without you. That these services don't mean a thing without you. That they're just reading words on a page. That what makes the Bible the Bible is that the author is still alive. And that you revealed the truth of your word. And it's sharper than a double-edged sword. And that when we come into your presence, oh, Father, as we're dismissed tonight, can we go in an attitude of being sent like you were sent? I, want, I wonder what will happen when my son is growing up or my daughter's growing up and I'm standing over them in their bedroom and I'm speaking the word of God over them and I'm praying for them. Could it be that's what it means? The, power, the prayer of a righteous one is powerful and effective. Could that be the idea? We give you all the praise and we ask these things in the name of your son, Christ Jesus. Amen. Appreciate you being attentive and I want to be respectful of your time. Oh, man, that is good truth. It makes everything we do here, I think, worthwhile and meaningful. So I appreciate you, Pastor.